Okay. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, we'll uh, we'll get going here. Um, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Uh, we'll get into our studies, our lesson here, and uh, start looking at uh, uh, this stuff about change. Talking a little bit about perfection last uh, Wednesday. Get into a little bit more, just so we can get an example that uh, it's not just some obscure thing that God's asking us to do. But uh, there, there is a very distinct thing that we see when it comes to perfection about uh, uh, his will and uh, what his desire is. But uh, let's go ahead and pray first and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time that we have this evening, Lord, to just come together, meet and study. Thank you again, Lord, for your scriptures that you've given to us, that uh, we have a clear direction and clear instruction in this life. Um, I just pray, Lord, that... Uh, as we've gathered here, that uh, you just speak to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would work in us, show us and give us the understanding thereof, and uh, that, Lord, that we would uh, please you and uh, honor you with all that we say and do. And, Lord, we just pray that for tonight, and we pray that, uh, that Lord, we would just have uh, that heart that would be receptive and ready to, to receive those things that you've given to us. Thank you again, Lord, for those that are here. And pray, Lord, that this time would be uh, glorifying unto you. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So uh, we were talking about over there in uh, 2 Timothy um, uh, chapter 3 and verse 17, talking about that specific phrase that Paul used uh, for Timothy, that the man of God may be perfect, and I wanted to briefly just kind of, if you will, stop there just for a moment to address the issue, because as, you know, many people have said, they, they look at that passage and they go, well, nobody's going to be perfect. But God has a certain expectation of us. God has a certain desire uh, for us to uh, accomplish his will and accomplish it in a certain way, and he's going to give us the ability to do that. Uh, again, it is going to be based off of our willingness to uh, submit to the Holy Spirit and scriptures. And uh, obviously, when we don't do that, that's when we run into the issues of uh, uh, the imperfection. But we read a few passages, saw some examples that were in scripture of individuals that were perfect. Uh, not just one, but uh, a few others. And uh, I want us to turn over to the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 22, we're going to go through a few uh, passages here just to see that this is not something that is, uh, uh, if you will, just kind of a, 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 a flash in the pan type of principle. This is something that we see consistently throughout scripture and we see it consistently, um, given not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. In, uh, Leviticus chapter 22, Leviticus chapter 22, and, uh, let's go ahead and, uh, take a look here. Uh, in verse 21, it says, And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or freewill offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemishes or no blemish therein. So God had an expectation when it came to the sacrifices. So, so when they were offering uh, of their cattle and they were offering of uh, the the flocks, the sheep, uh, there was an expectation of them to be perfect. Now, if you've ever seen a sheep, you understand those things are not always perfect. But again, he's talking about things that are blemishes. 
And what we find with blemishes is that those are things that are often related to sin. You know, leprosy is related to sin in typology. You have spots that are related to, to sin in typology throughout scripture. Same thing, uh, here. He had an expectation. He didn't bring something that was lame and halt and had one broken leg or there was the one that was malformed or skinny or, or the one that, uh, you know, was sickly or anything of that nature. You brought a healthy animal that did not have any type of problems with it. And, and this is simply what God is, is kind of getting at. Here we are looking at the sacrifices and we know that Jesus Christ obviously personified a perfect sacrifice. But here he is asking us in multiple locations to be perfect. Turn over the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy. Um, and again, when we look at the world, if we were to go through and, and try to find something perfect, people don't often find that. You know, you're going through and you're trying to, 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 to find a, something in, uh, uh, if you will, that is in creation that is perfect. You're, it's difficult to do. You, you ever try to go out and shop for like a Christmas tree or something? And everybody's, you know, debating about what's the perfect tree and what's the perfect type and so on and so forth. And they have to cut them this way and I have to do that and blah, blah, blah. All these things or uh, whatever it may be. People are going out there looking for uh, the right kind of plant that they can put out there in uh, in their uh, their yard or a tree or something of that nature. Uh, and you're going through all the things about, well, what is perfect for it and what's good for the ground. And, you know, all these things that you look at. There's a lot to take into consideration. But what we see is that God has this expectation that whatsoever is done for him is to be done without sin. And and, and again, that's something that, that some people uh, have this hard time grasping and saying, well, you know, I, I uh, uh, you know, we're, we're never going to get to that point of without sin. Well, sin is always going to be in the world till this is all over with. We understand that we're going to be battling sin on a day-to-day basis. We understand that we're going to mess up. We're, you know, people are going to sin after they're saved. It happens. Um, you know, what, what we do is, you know, obviously in scripture, we, we, we confess it, we repent and we, we, we turn away from it. We turn to God. We deal with it. And we're, this is exactly what we're talking about. And this is what we're striving to do. But as the more that we begin to look at this thing of issue of being perfect, we find that it's not just this, 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 if you will, this mentality of this perfect white, uh, uh, clean cloth, uh, um, sinless type thing that we often think of. It's something that's very specific. And we'll get a little bit more detail with this. But let's take a look here at Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse, uh, uh, verse 13. Back up here just a little bit here to verse 9. It says, When thou art coming to the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, Thou shalt not uh, learn to do after the abomination of those abominations of those nations. Uh, there shall not be found among you uh, any one that maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or wizards, or a necromancer. Necromancer is somebody that tries to to speak to the dead. And it says in verse 12, for all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out of the, uh, out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. Here he is at making it very clear. He's saying, if you want to be perfect, don't do what they were doing. Don't do what the heathen were doing. 
Now, when we take a look at that, it becomes very apparent. That would be something that we kind of would look at and go, well, that's kind of duh. We, you know, we know that, right? But at the same time, many people, they, they, they struggle with that. They struggle with worldly things. Um, and, and the idea behind all of this is, is what you, you see with all of these things that are there. All of it is for the course of divination. It's trying to either find the future, trying to find answers where, uh, really you don't want to get those answers from the, from these sources. All of these things, it's trying to, if you will, uh, um, make the right path in front of them. Hence the, the, <laughs> the offering of their, excuse me, offering of their children. So we, we see it very clearly that those are things that are left to God. Part of perfection is letting God do the work. Part of perfection is letting God do this. Let God be God. Don't try to take it away from him. Don't go about trying to, 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 to divine it in some other way. You would be surprised how many Christians believe in something as silly as numerology. Now look, you know, there's a couple different terms, you know, and I use the term numerology. I'm talking about it in the form of divination. I'm not talking about studying numbers in scripture, okay? Uh, uh, like, you know, 12 relating to Israel and five relating to death and six to man. I'm not talking about that. That's just a study of numbers and the way that God uses things in scripture to communicate types and, and signs and things and symbols to various different groups. But what I'm talking about is the numerology where they sit down and they say that it is biblically oriented where they go about and what do they do? They, they, they will grab all of the numbers in your, uh, your birth date and try to determine uh, what your your uh, Christian, if you will, fate is going to be. Like who in the no? Wh- where do you even see that? That's divination. You just stay stay clear of that stuff. Uh, we had some friends one time. Uh, their their parents were in a church. This was a church that was in Portland. Uh, it was a, a proclaimed Christian church. Uh, and, uh, the, the pastor's wife, uh, at one of the, uh, ladies events got up and began teaching to the ladies the use of a pendulum to do, to, to discern what the will of God was. Uh, no, absolutely not. Somebody busts out a pendulum or some sort of other object and says, this is going to, you know, you might as well just whip out the Ouija board then, right? Because, I mean, come on, this, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And, and they, they, a bunch of people, you know, confronted the pastor and said, you can't really honestly have her, you know, teaching this. This is, this, this is wrong. This is scripturally wrong. And he defended it. He defended it. Next thing you know is the church is like split and closed and all sorts of stuff going on. And it's just, I mean, it's a mess. It's a mess. Those things are prohibited. Why, why is that? Because we need to let God handle that. God's the one that takes care of the lots. God's the one that knows the future. God's the one that handles all of that. We're, we're, we're not equipped to deal with that. Nor should we be seeking anything else other than God to know those things. You ever wonder why he gave us prophecy in scripture? Probably because we're just curious people. But as we all know, what the adage is, is curiosity killed the cat. But, you know, as we see in Scripture, some people get so hung up, like on the book of Revelation, that they can't find anything else to do with their Christian life. 
they can't live, you know, in a spiritual world or uh, in, in a spiritual min, uh, mindset, uh, a biblical mindset, because they're so, if you will, enraptured with that and all the things that are there, trying to figure out what these creatures are and trying to, you know, go through and, 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 and deciphering things in old mythology and, oh, it could be this creature and, oh, it could be that. And I'm just going to take it at face value what it said it is there. Why? Because I don't know what it is. I don't want to know what it is. I don't plan on being there for it. So excuse me, but I just, you know, you go ahead and do whatever you're going to do with that thing. But the end result is, is we find people trying to do what God can only do. And part of getting into this perfection is allowing God to do the work. And when it comes to change, God has to, we have to allow God to do the work. Now, again, uh, and we'll get into this and when we start talking about the roles between man and God in, 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 in this situation, uh, it's not one of those people where we sit back in what is referred to as quietness doctrine, where we sit back and we just go waiting on the Lord. We don't do anything. You know, there's people that, that will sit there and they'll say, oh yeah, I'm involved in this horrible adulterous relationship, but until, until God comes down and tells me otherwise that I shouldn't do this, I'm going to keep doing it. Until he gives me the willpower to do this and get away from the sin, I'm going to keep doing it. No! Stop it! <laughs> oh no. I did do it, didn't I? Oh no. Uh, it's an inside joke. It's an inside joke. I'll have to show you guys later. I could probably show you some of you guys this. It's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you just look at scripture and scripture tells us, don't do that. Don't do that. But, uh, uh, go over to Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 32 and, uh, <clears throat> And in verse four, this is, uh, this is just a follow up with what I was just saying. It says here, uh, he is the rock. Notice it's a capital R. It's a capital R. Well, why is that? Because that rock is Jesus Christ. He says he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. It says his work is perfect. His work is perfect. See, this is why it becomes so critical that we use Scripture and we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and to teach us and to guide us and do the work and the tasks that the Holy Spirit in Scripture is shown to do. We try to do it on ourselves in some sort of self-help mentality. The end result is is we, 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 we just mess it up. Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to do it in humanism. We're trying to do it in the form of elevating ourselves in pride or, 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 or accomplishing it without God. But the Bible says, it says that, um, that it's through Christ that we can do these things. Not, not through ourselves. We have to understand that. We have to understand, you know, as Paul was talking about in Second Corinthians, when I am weak, he is strong. You know? His glory is is perfected in that in that weakness. Why is that? Because it shows that He is the one that will will do that work and help us and 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 and, and work in our lives and convict us and show us. But the issue is, is we actually have to use the the, the scripture to do that. 
Can't just sit back on our hands and sit there and go, well, I'm not doing anything until God forces my hand to do something. No, pick up, pick up your Bible, read it, study, listen, open the ears, have a soft heart. If you can't get a soft heart, figure out how to get a soft heart from scripture. So there's all those things that we begin to see. Turn over to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. And here he is, if you will, telling the nation of Israel, of all people, to be perfect. 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Here we find another situation. And here uh, um, uh, David is giving... uh, a song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And uh, in verse uh, 31, it says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them uh, that trust in him. For who is God save the Lord? Who is a rock save our God? It says in verse 33, God is my strength and power. He maketh my way perfect. If he's perfect, he will make our way perfect. So the idea is, is that we match what God tells us to do, then we don't have to worry about that situation of being, quote-unquote, imperfect. If we're following what God tells us to do, then it's not an issue. It's only when our pride and our will comes in, where we don't want to do what God tells us to do, that we just deviate and we go off a different direction. Take a look at another passage. Go over to First uh, Kings, First Kings chapter eight, First Kings chapter eight, and, and this is David, who again wrote uh, uh, quite a bit of the 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 um, uh, the Psalms um, in First Kings chapter eight. And oh, let's see here, jump over there to verse. Uh, Uh, verse 59, it says, And let these my words uh, wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord be nigh unto the, unto the Lord our God day and night, that he may uh, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times, as the matter shall require, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. So here we are, now we're talking about Solomon. Now Solomon obviously did not have a perfect heart. He, he, he messed up. Well, he started out really good. He started off with that perfect heart, but then all of a sudden he changed. Well, why did he change? Because his affections changed. His affections changed. And people say, well, it was because of the women. No, it was because of the power of those relationships with the women and the nations with whom he had those, uh, uh, those, those wives and concubines. It was, it was all about that. Well, who was preserving the peace then? And as soon as he messed up, what happened? Peace ceased to exist. So we see a very clear thing here, but it comes down to with the perfect heart. This is what God wants. God wants a perfect heart. And everybody's going to go over to the book of Jeremiah and Jeremiah 17 and say, well, I know what my heart is. I get that. 
But doesn't he create in you a new creature? Doesn't he work in you to to go uh, um, contrary to the old man? Doesn't he? I mean, again, if we're just letting everything go and we're just going to let all of the old influences still affect us, then we're going to have a hard time doing what God is asking us to do. Now, remember, he's asking this. This is this is Old Testament. They didn't even have all the scriptures. They didn't have all of that that we have today. We've got far more. Take a look at Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles uh, chapter uh, eight. Second Chronicles chapter eight. <clears throat> I want you to see something here with this situation. Second Chronicles chapter eight. <clears throat> And in verse 16, it says, Now all the work of Solomon was prepared under the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord, and until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was perfected. Now, isn't that a peculiar phrase to use in referring to the temple being completed? Now, we are complete in Christ. Now, it's interesting, and I've pointed this out before, you go over there and it talks about the man of God that he may be thoroughly what? Furnished. What do you do with a house? You furnish it. You go into a house that's empty and it's it's vacant and it's ready to be rented or to, to be purchased. Um, it's not really a home, is it? Nothing's Nobody's dwelling there. You might have somebody that comes in and decides to dwell there. And I remember when I was a, a, a bit nomadic, if you will, in my life, I had my futon and um, I think I had uh, uh, some, you know, a dresser and some boxes and things like that. And that was about it. I had a TV and I was good to go. Loaded everything up out of my parents' house that, that fit into the back of a Ford Aerostar van and went out on my own, right? Well, I'll tell you this, here's the interesting thing that we, we, we realize about that. You can have a few things here and there, but God wants you to be thoroughly furnished. Why is that? You take a look and think about all the things that were in the temple. From the altar, to the altar of incense, to the laver, to the candlestick, to uh, the table of showbread, to the mercy seat to everything that was there that was purposed to be used of God that was consecrated and sanctified for its use. Had everything you needed. Had everything you needed to appropriately worship God. So here he is talking about perfecting the house of the Lord. Now I'm sure there was probably a crack in a stone. I'm sure there was probably something that was probably just a little bit out of alignment. But I'll tell you this, the perfection was about the purpose behind it. The purpose that was behind what God had put forth with that house was to be near God. So if we want to be perfected, we allow him to furnish the things that are necessary in our life to glorify him, just like they did in the temple. All those furnishings. All those things that we saw that were used. And we can find correlations between those things and what we have in our life 
and, uh, um, uh, and, and, and it becomes pretty evident that, that God's making a connection there. And doesn't he call us and say, what, no, you're not, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost? You think he wants to live in a place that's empty? No, he wants to see the furnishings inside it. The furnishings that are going to, uh, uh, if you will, bring about where you're doing that good, that righteousness that he's asking you to do to prove that perfect will of God in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This becomes a critical part of where we, when we start realizing this issue of perfection. Go over to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. <clears throat> I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but but it's it's important for us to understand that when we say this, what God's expectation is. God's expectation is, yes, perfect. Let's not discount it and say, well, I'll never get there. Well, you'll never get there if you never try. And you'll never get there if you never do. So here we are taking a look in Psalm chapter 19, and at verse says, verse seven, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, is that verse not talking about change? I mean, we look at that and it's very clear. Converting the soul from one thing to another. What is it doing? It's making wise the simple. There's a surety behind it, meaning it's not just something that is, if you will, far-fetched. And at the same time, he says, it's the law of the Lord that is perfect. So here we are realizing that the law of the Lord is perfect. And we, as we talked about, it's preserved and it's inspired. And in order to get that perfection, we have to use the word of God to furnish those things in our life so that we can do the good things. If we do not have the furnishings of the word of God in our life and we do not allow the Holy Spirit to dwell in us in the way that is yielded to him, then we are going to, we're going to struggle with that. We're going to struggle with that. So therein lies one of the biggest issues that a lot of people have some contention about. And there's many other passages. I mean, again, we could go over to the book of James in James chapter 3 and says, if you can control your mouth and what you say, you can be perfect. It says that over in James chapter 3, verse 2. And, and and what is the hardest thing for us to control? <laughs> I mean, we can control our hands far better than we can control our mouth. Why? Because the mouth speaks what the heart's full of. It reveals things. And that's why it, 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 we, we realize when he starts talking about that over there, that it's sitting on a, that fire. Where is that fire starting from? There's a foundation that it has, and it's sinful in its thought, the thoughts of the heart, produces out what we say. So we have to be very, very careful with this. Now, again, I want us to begin to understand that these are expectations that God has. This is an expectation of Ken Stewart. This isn't uh, anything of that nature. This is this is just simply God communicating. This is what he wants from Christians, from believers. If we're going to call ourselves a Christian and be a follower of Jesus Christ, then we're going to do this. 
then we're going to do it. And we begin to see that Scripture itself is an agent of perfection. It itself is perfect. I mean, it's complete and thoroughly furnished. He says, don't add to it and don't take away, right? And, and, and does this not tell you every single good work that you ever need to do? And doesn't it tell you what you shouldn't do? I mean, we find that this becomes the agent of perfection in our life. The Holy Spirit uses this to do that, to refine us. Now, now I mentioned something about relationships, and I and I want to want to just hit this very quickly. I want you to turn over the book of Matthew. <clears throat> And I want to point something out. And, and again, um, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22, I, I want to hit this again because it's important. Matthew chapter 22, <clears throat> and uh, it says here in uh, verse 34, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees in silence, they were gathered together. And then one of them, which was a lawyer, you always got to leave it to the lawyers, right? Asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, here's the interesting thing. He's asking him to go back to the Word of God. Scripture. And how does he respond? Jesus, in verse uh, uh, 37, said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now there is an interesting thing to think about. Every relationship you have in your life is dependent on the word of God. Specifically, these two. And these are things that he, I mean, again, they they were mentioned in the Old Testament, and now here he is reiterating them. I'll tell you this, it becomes very, very important for us to understand that these two relationships with God and with others that we find in Matthew chapter 22 are directly related to the Word. Directly related to Scripture. Your relationships that you have with people in this life will be directly related to how you apply these two commandments. Now this becomes very critical because especially when we start talking about things that we need to change. Because sometimes we need to change things because it's affecting other people. Sometimes there's things that we do that we don't realize that we do. Until somebody points it out and there's a rebuke, right? And then when that rebuke comes, there should be some conviction with it. And then there needs to be correction. The person that receives the rebuke has the conviction and then never does anything about it. There's a problem with that person's heart. There's an issue with the person's heart. Because they are failing to fulfill the law of God. They're failing to fulfill what God has asked them to do. So we begin to realize that this is of the great, uh, you know, the utmost importance. Because most of our behaviors are going to involve other people. And somebody's going to say, well, I've got, a, I've got a private sin that nobody knows about. Nobody, you know, look, 
at some point in time, somebody's going to probably see you do it, or you're going to understand exactly what the book of Numbers talks about. Be, be sure your sin will find you out. And it comes out in the most inopportune ways, at the most inopportune time, and in a way that's generally not that gracious and elegant. It comes out violent, and it comes out horrific, and it leaves carnage. It leaves destruction. Severs relationships. It destroys things. It's like a bomb. Shrapnel everywhere. So when we begin to realize exactly what God's talking about with these relationships, we begin to realize that we want to make changes because, number one, this is what pleases God. And number two, it's going to possibly benefit someone else. Making a change isn't always about us. Well, I don't want to make a change. What about the people that are affected by it? What about the people that have to deal with it? Because again, you know, we talk about sin and we talk about sin as if you throw a stone into, into a pond and what happens? Well, there's ripples. And as I've often said, what may seem like a small ripple right at the center of it could wind up being a tsunami somewhere else. You know, all it takes is to move one meter of water, uh, 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 you know, uh, say like 10 feet in the middle of the ocean and you're wiping out Japanese fishing villages. It's, I mean, it's not pleasant. And, it, and when you think about it, it's, it was just a small volume of water compared to the rest of the ocean. But yet it had a very distinct effect on somebody else. So we have to realize that. Our witness is critical. Why is that? Because it's not about, you know, again, our witness as in, you know, our shame and our pride or anything of that nature or our glory, God forbid, it's about his glory. It's about him. Our witness is about his glory, not about what we do. And we have to be, we have to get to that understanding. So when we start looking at these changes, we begin to realize, okay, God is very serious about it. God's serious about it. So let's talk about this issue because we've obviously got two individuals involved in this. We've got God and we've got man. Just like the two, in, two, two relationships he points out here, in change we have two roles. We've got God and we've got man. And in order to really understand uh, um, the requirements of, of making change, we have to understand what the Bible says. Go back over there to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and I want you to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 16, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. The very first thing that he talks about is doctrine. I will tell you this. A person that has their theology messed up will be a person that will have a very, very, very tumultuous Christian life. What do I mean by that? A person doesn't think that Jesus Christ was holy, perfect, and pure, then that's going to give them carte blanche to go ahead and do whatever they want to do, right? If they don't think that uh, God is the authority and his word is authority and that whatever their feelings 
are on the matter or whatever they think in their opinions are what are put at the top priority, that's going to be, that's going to be a big issue. So we begin to see that, that, that just understanding who God is, understanding the scriptures, understanding the Holy Spirit as we just kind of went through, that's doctrinal stuff. Some people get this idea sometimes that doctrine is, you know, Daniel chapter 7. Or, you know, studying out all the beasts that are found therein and relating them to the beasts that are found in the book of Revelation and, 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 and sitting down and having complete understanding of the book of Ezekiel. Or Song of Solomon, for that matter. Well, yeah, that's doctrine in itself. But you know what else doctrine is? What doctrine is? Be perfect. You know what else doctrine is? Um, do what God tells you to do. Romans twelve. That's doctrine. Uh, you letting Him do the work in you. Understanding that you're not your own. You were bought with a price. First Corinthians six. Understanding what charity is. Doctrine. That's doctrine. People get messed up on their theology. Guess what? They're going to have a hard time making a change. It's a, it's a requirement. To understand these roles, it's required that we have an understanding of the Bible, understanding of Scripture. Uh, it, it's hard to counsel somebody that has never opened the Bible. It's hard to counsel somebody that doesn't believe the Bible's true. It's hard to counsel somebody that, that believes the Bible is filled, filled with errors. It's hard to do those things. Uh, I don't want to say impossible because, you know, what can happen? God can work in that person's life where you give Scripture and the Holy Spirit uses that Scripture to convict and make the change. Seen that happen. So we, we can find some of these same things that we see here. So, so essentially what we begin to look at is in these two roles, in these two relationships, we find there's this, if you will, this, this, uh, this humanistic mentality of self-help. You go to any Christian bookstore today and you will, if, if you can find one anymore, they're almost all closed. <clears throat> you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a lot of self-help stuff. You can go to YouTube and find everything for self-help. Now, not all of it is true. You know, you got some guy over there sitting there saying, oh, all you have to do is you have to, to squeeze lemon juice on all of your meals and automatically you will burn the fat cells right off of your belly. Man, I wish that was true. I'd be squeezing, squeezing lemon juice all over a Caesar salad if I could eat it. And I do. It has yet to burn fat calories off of me, all right? Now, if I, all I drink is lemon juice, yeah, I'm going to burn fat calories as long as along with muscle and everything else. But what I truly you're going to find is you're going to find a ton of resources out there that are self-help. You know what all of those are? Humanism. It elevates you. It elevates you. In any type of change where we need help, it's about going to the person that can provide help, as the book of Psalms says, where does the psalmist go to help? God. He goes, he goes straight to God to get help. So when we try to will it on our own or do it on our own or anything of that nature, we wind up with that humanistic self-help mentality. On the other hand, like I said, you wind up with this, uh, what is referred to as quietness. 
uh, or quietism sometimes, uh, as it can be called. And that's that little saying that people often say, let go and let God. Sometimes these little sayings, I understand they are meant for good intention, but some people just, you know, they can't handle them. This is why it's so dangerous. We live in a society where everything is a tweet and everything is a headline and we never read the actual articles. We never study it out. Yeah, I I tell you, voting in the United States of America drives me up the wall. Why don't we have a uniform format of people having to answer questions, and if they don't answer the questions, they can't be a candidate? Oh, dear. I mean, it's just like a joke. Read the Washington's voter guide and some guy's qualifications. He says, I haven't been to jail. Well, I guess that might be kind of good, but we're asking about qualifications to lead. Not being in jail, I guess, is, you know, hey, good for you, but, you know. I'm not going to vote for you because of that. I haven't been in jail, so does that mean I get to vote for myself? I mean, I've been in jail, but not in jail. Never mind. <laughs> I was invited to a bit, a bit inside jails. I remember one time I was invited to one up in Linwood and got to see this guy just uh, wrecked his car and killed his friend in the car wreck, and they were bringing him in right after out of the hospital. He had bandages all over him. He walks by me, and I'm standing there. And he walks past me and my my friend, and he walks past, and he's just kind of like looking at us, glaring at us. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, "You're the one that's going to be behind bars. I get to walk out of here, on and, and, and go and go have coffee with my friend. You're going to be here for a while. You're going to be here for a while. But you know what? I take a look at this, and I see that uh, some people just they, they they're They're lazy in their Christian life. They're slothful. And what I mean by that is they want God to actually come down from heaven and move their arms and move their body. And I've dealt with this before. I've had people say, and they're like, well, 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 I've prayed about this, and I prayed about it, and I prayed about it, and I prayed about it, and God's not answering my prayers. And I and I said, okay, well, I understand that, but if you don't mind, you know, I know it's between you and God, but w- w- what exactly is your prayer that, that God would stop me from doing it? What do you want Him to do every time you you, you attempt to do it? Slap you right upside the head? I guess the new thing is do it with a tortilla. I don't know. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it, what do you want him to do? As soon as you, as soon as you reach out to do it, do you want him to taser you? Lightning bolt from heaven on low voltage comes down and shocks you? I mean, how, how, how was he supposed to do that? Now granted, he could, he could just strike you dead right there, like Ananias and Sapphira. They're gone. But, you can't, you can't do that. Because it, it it involves a cooperation together with God, where, where where you're letting Him show you and convict you where the issues are and the problems are, and then you take the Scripture and you say, "Oh, this is what I'm going to do," and then you do that, and then God blesses that, and then the end result is is you start making the change that you're supposed to change. There is a very distinct way that God is supposed to do it. 
Because, you know, somebody that's self-help, you know, they, they see the necessity for obedience. And the person that's over there with the quietness, you know, they realize that they must rely on, on, on the Holy Spirit to supply, uh, um, the, you know, the, the power and the wisdom to do and be obedient. But the two of them have to be connected together. We have to realize that, that if we're going to obey, as we've talked about before, it comes from a desire of the heart. It comes from a change in our heart. That's what repentance is about. Repentance is a key agent in change itself. If repentance is not there, guess what happens? There is not a lot of change. There's not a lot of change. You know, we see that. We see that the Bible, we see that the Holy Spirit, we see the conviction, we see the enabling, and we see the obedience. We see all of these things that are the work of God in our life, that we're doing those things. It's not him coming down and forcing us to do it. We're not Calvinists. But what we find is we find that there is a specific function that the Holy Spirit does to do these things, to, to bring these things together, to say, hey, okay, you know, you know, as an example, let's just take, take Joseph for an example. There he is. He, he, he's, he, he's in a situation where Potiphar's wife is trying to do something evil. What does he do? He runs. Do you think that the Holy Spirit moved his legs and made him go and run off? No, he made a decision, he made a choice, and he said, I'm out of here because that's wrong. And he takes off. He made the right decision. He made the right decision. But what we find very clearly is we find that there's the work of the Holy Spirit that, 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 that works in us. And if you go back over there, and, and if you're still there in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction, okay? Those four things that we're, we're, we're moving to start taking a look at, we find those very similar things with what the Holy Spirit's responsibilities are. Uh, does he not teach truth? First John, turn, turn, turn the book of First John. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. In verse 27, 1 John 2, 27, it says, But the anointing which ye have, ye received of him that abideth in you. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. And ye need not any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaching you of all things in his truth, he is called the Spirit of truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. You abide in the Spirit, you abide in, in, in Christ, you abide in God, you are going to have the, he's going to be giving you the ability to do that. He's going to teach you. He's going to teach you. Take a look at John chapter 14. I'm going to rifle through these because I'm looking at my time kind of slipping away from here and I want to get to a certain point. John chapter 14. <clears throat> In verse 26, it says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Again, you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're in the middle of doing something 
and and you're sitting there thinking about, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then all of a sudden you get this uh, this realization of, oh, hey, this is what Scripture says that I'm supposed to do, and you go and do that. Well, where do you think that came from? It didn't come from Ken Stewart preaching a message on Sunday. It came from the Holy Spirit bringing it to your remembrance. Why is that? Because sometimes we're as dull as as a as a pool stick. <laughs> I mean, seriously, sometimes we are. I mean, we just, we don't get it. And then here comes the Holy Spirit and says, hey, you remember this? And we're like, oh, yeah. <sighs> That's what he does. It's his work. It's teaching. It's teaching. And how many times do you have to remind children when they're doing something? You're like, hey, I need you to do this. Oh, okay. Five minutes later, did you do it? Uh, and then you're like, okay, go do it. Okay. And then you remind him, hey, did you do that thing? Because you're going to get a spanking if you don't. I'm doing it right now. You know, that type of mentality, right? <clears throat> Teaching. Teaching. Conviction. While we're there in uh, the book of John, turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. <clears throat> and uh, in uh, verse... Uh, Verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of judgment, excuse me, of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of the world is judged. Of this world is judged. Look at what's his job. Reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. You know what that's called? Conviction. Conviction. That's one of the things that we saw over there in 2 Timothy 3. And what does he say? This is reproof. That's necessary for the conviction process. It's necessary for the conviction process. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. The other thing is correction. Correction. He will correct us. Galatians chapter 6. In verse 1 it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Correction. And it's done in a spiritual manner. And if it's done in a spiritual manner, it is done with the Holy Spirit of God. If it's done with any other spirit, it's not a God. It's not of God. I mean, we see that he provides the uh, uh, the fruit over there in chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23. We've we got Mike Griffey ta- uh, teaching about that in the Sunday school classes on Sunday morning. And what do we find here? That's given to us by God. And those are things that we look at, and that's corrective action. Corrective action. These are things that we need to be doing. Correction. And then there's the discipline part, the training part, the part where uh, uh, where we're getting that instruction in righteousness. And if we're there in Galatians chapter 5, I want you to take a look over here. And in verse uh, 16, he says, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is discipline. This is discipline. You have to discipline yourself to walk in the Spirit. You have to purpose to do it. You have to purpose to do it. There's no autopilot in the Christian life. 
you find a button that says autopilot, don't push it. It's going to blow up in your face. In verse 17, he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. He points it out. He says, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why we sin. Because we got the two things battling it out, and what happens? We won't choose to walk in the flesh rather than walk in the spirit. That ever happened to you? Well, one day you're just walking along, and then all of a sudden you just kind of just shift over into flesh mode. And then you step back and you look at yourself and you go, ew, what, what, what happened there? Oh, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. And what happens? We don't do what we're supposed to do. And what does God say? If we don't do what we know is supposed to be done, that which is good, he calls it what? Sin. Failing to do what you know you're supposed to do, what is good, sin. It's a sin of omission. And here he says, right here in verse 18, he says, but if ye be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. And there's the issue. Are we willing to be led? Are we willing to be led? The greatest agent of change that we can have is the leading of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God in our life. Now, that's some things that some people struggle on and they try to, to try to figure that out. But I will tell you this. As soon as you begin to just yield to the Holy Spirit and what He tells us and what He teaches us, and you simply do what He asks us from Scripture, follow His, you know, do His will, follow His ways, say what He wants you to say, that I, I tell you this, you are being led. You are being led. The minute we start doing something that's on our own, we're no longer being led. We're on our own. We either shot ahead of God or we're far behind and he's got to drag us. One or the other. And it's all done scripturally with the Bible. I want to, I want to emphasize that. Uh, the, the, these things are all done scripturally with the Bible. Uh, not with feelings. Not with feelings. So much of this life is run on feelings. So much of it is run on feelings. So much so that somebody says truth, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that hurt my feelings. Well, sometimes the truth is offensive. Now, obviously, we say and speak the truth in love, and we do it in the right way. But I will tell you this it becomes imperative that we understand that it has to be spiritually led through Scripture. If it's not, it's going to create a problem. I want you to turn to one final place, Acts chapter 20. I want to show you something here. If, if, if I could say, um, you know, I look at people in Scripture and, and, and I see them doing giving uh, counsel, things of that nature, uh, probably one of the ones that I would, uh, and this is my opinion, by the way. You can you can say what your opinion is. Uh, that's totally fine. I'm not going to be offended by it. I think probably one of the greatest counselors in Scripture um, uh, that that God used as a, as a man was Paul. Was Paul, and he had to counsel some really, 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 really messed up stuff. Um, 
and, and, and we're talking about early Christianity and there was all sorts of craziness happening. But I, but I want you to see what he talks about here in, uh, in chapter 20 in in Acts chapter 20 and, uh, jump down there to, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, verse, uh, verse 20 itself. Well, actually verse 19, he says, uh, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying of the way to the Jews. And again, this is a key thing about anybody that ever gives counsel that has to be done with the humility of mind. And it will be done with tears and temptations, many, many tears. Okay. Verse 20, though, it says here, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house. He didn't keep anything back when it came to the Word of God. When it came to, 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 to showing what God wanted in, the, in their lives, he didn't hold anything back. Jump to verse 27, and he says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. All the counsel of God. He didn't, he, he didn't shun himself. He, he, he wasn't, he wasn't holding back. And this becomes a critical thing that we as Christians have to realize. You know, there's going to be time in your life that you are going to be called to counsel somebody. You're going to be called to counsel somebody. If you are following the word of God, you are going to be called to counsel somebody. I'm not saying you're going to be called to be a counselor. There's a big difference, okay? I'm not saying you're getting called to be a pastor or anything of that nature. But what I'm saying is at some point in time, somebody's going to ask you for counsel. You have to make sure that you give them all the counsel of the Word of God and don't shun away from it. Don't hold it back. Show them from Scripture. Why? Because that is going to be the agent of change of perfection as the Holy Spirit uses it in their life. You hold back that one piece... You might have some issues with that person. That person might not fully understand. So you have to be very, very careful with that. And the next week, we're going to really start in earnest with talking about those four, four, uh, uh, if you will, uh, elements of the process of change. Uh, talking about that over there in, in 2 Timothy 3, talking about doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Uh, the necessary, if you will, the teaching, the, uh, the conviction, the correction, that discipleship and continued training. All of those things are necessary in, 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 uh, if we're going to try to make a change that lasts. If we're going to do a change that is biblical um, and uh, scriptural, that's led by the Spirit. So we'll take a look at that, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again just for using the scripture to uh, work in our lives. And thank you again for the Holy Spirit that diligently teaches us. Uh, sometimes when we don't learn the first time, he teaches us again and again and again. And Lord, I just thank you for that. I thank you for your long suffering and your mercy and your kindness and your gentleness towards us. And Lord, I pray that you would just continue to extend that to us, Lord, as we desire to please you and... Uh, live for you in a way that would honor and glorify everything that you've done for us and who you are. Pray, Lord, you take us away here safely tonight and just uh, keep us safe as we're driving home. And uh, Lord, that throughout this week, we'd have many opportunities, Lord, to be a witness and uh, tell somebody about Jesus Christ. But Lord, we would be used in a way that would be pleasing unto you. And I ask and pray all of this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.